0: Okay, good evening everybody and welcome to doctrinal class. Uh, there is a, uh, this will be for the benefit of those who are listening online as well as you folks, but all of the documents that I am putting together for you uh, to go in your book, uh, these next two, uh, it was a recommendation and, uh, or that I put together a glossary of terms uh, that are regularly going to be used throughout the doctrinal book or throughout each section. Uh, this will be kind of a quick guide for you. The first one uh, that you have there is going to be, and I'm going to number uh, each one of these pages sequentially so they're not going to be in line with the page numbers for the study guide. So. If you wanted to have a tab on there that said uh, glossary of terms or whatever it may be, uh, the goal is to be able to have, um, is for you to be able to have just a quick reference guide to some of these uh, terms so that you can then go back and do a quick reference instead of actually trying to dig through the book and say, what about this or what is this or I remember reading that word somewhere. And then also um, on the study guides if i can have one of those please brother for a moment because i've got mine but um one of the things you'll notice as well they are alphabetical um because each one of these words they are in such a disjointed order you would have to go through and i want you to be able to get to it as quickly as possible so if you're sitting down having a doctrinal class or teaching somebody else, maybe at home, or or somebody that you know, and you're saying, hey, we have a doctrinal class, they work, they can't come on Sunday, you're welcome to use any of this material, okay? Um, on the back, though, and this is available also on our sermon audio, I have put these uh, available in PDF format. And the PDF format basically it has additional lines just like this right here, And all of the study guide material is actually going to have lines as well in the future. Um, I've redone some of them. They are also on. Does anybody have, for example, uh, everybody here should have uh, preface week one, which was a total of three pages. Has everybody got that one? Okay. And then the next section, introduction and prolegomena, was pages 33 uh, to 42. And this would have been, this would have taken you up through uh, uh, page 8, letters F and G. And then I'm actually going to, Lord willing, next week, I'm almost done with it now, and I am going to hand out uh, the next section. The one thing that you'll need to, to not really pay too much attention of is the lesson numbers at the top. That's really for my own benefit to be able to make sure that I know exactly where I'm at in the, in the series of things. Last time we only got through about a page, a uh, page and a half. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to get farther than that this evening. But the goal is not to rush through this. I want to make sure that if you have any questions um, or if you have any ideas whatsoever, I want you to be able to feel like this is your class as well. Um, Because it doesn't do any good to go through a 1,048-page book if we get to the end of it and you're not actually learning through the process as well. Okay, So um, I I hope, again, what I have done uh, right now for the sake of teaching this evening, I've got mine. I see some of you already have a three-ring notebook. Um, But I have my glossary of terms, and when I'm actually done with my lesson, I actually put those at the beginning of the... Come on in. Oh, hey, Sam. Um, I actually put these at the beginning of the book, so that, again, quick reference, okay? Um, The glossary of terms, as a general rule, is going to have a few additional lines on it, um, but... The, the, each of these are going to correspond to the page numbers that are actually found at the top. Okay, so all of these, uh, all, all of these things that you have right here on the first two, for example, they're actually found in the intro or th- in, in in the introduction of their preface, as well as the prolegomena up through page 42, and then the glossary of terms on this one here is through page 67, which will actually take us through the end of the Prolegomena, which simply is the introduction or the preface, like the foreword to doctrine. And then I did give you a few additional pieces of information on there, uh, and I'll try to do that as we go along, and that is the biblical languages part. Um, You'll see that it is in the material, if you've read through the rest of the Prolegomena, Um, But you'll find that there are three languages there, and I've given you a little bit of information as to where to find uh, each of those languages if you were to look in the original as well. All right. Are there any questions so far? No? All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we... Give thanks again for the opportunity and the privilege of being able to teach doctrine, be able to study your word. We know what Second Timothy chapter 3 says, that it is good uh, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works, fully equipped. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 says... Verse 15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So help us to rightly divide your word. And for those who are able to listen online later to the doctrinal class, I pray that they would be encouraged. We have a number of folks who are out sick today, we ask that you would bring healing to them, bring them back once again at the next appointed service time. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace and your mercy toward us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Does anybody have any questions from last Bible study that we did two Sunday nights ago?
1: Oh, Oh, my goodness could
0: grow a farm in that thing
1: because
0: <laughs> there are a lot of grounds never mind
1: <clears throat>
0: <laughs> oh man I'm awake
1: <coughs> so, like,
0: so any put our questions back on our head. I'm sorry to put hair back on our head. Uh, yeah I know I'm I'm not sure what that's gonna do
1: <laughs> only got lifetime,
0: right? Th- through point uh, why are each of these important to the study yeah. Yeah. Yes, correct. Yeah, we're moving at a lightning speed.
1: <laughs> slow lightning. Fine
0: with me. <laughs> I'm slow. Okay, so uh, one other thing if you, I, I see several of you are writing, and I want to be able to make this as accessible and as easy for you as possible. If you find that you don't have enough room, I mean I could put pages, I mean you see how much my wife writes if you sit across from her. Um, I mean she writes a diary every time I speak. I I think it's to correct the points later. Um, But if you were to write a lot and you need more room, I would be more than happy to provide you um, with a copy of uh, either the PDF files, if you've got Adobe Acrobat and you can change that, um, or I can also give you the Microsoft Word documents. Um, so I would just email those to you and then you can use them uh, to go back, refill out your pages um, and if you wanted to print those off you're welcome to do so. We have a printer here, we also have a stapler uh, or a hole punch, whatever you need um, or you can just do it on a tablet as well, whichever works best for you. Okay. So let's go ahead and continue then. And we got down through, uh, I have down that we had actually gotten down through the end of, uh, all the way to the end of question number two, uh, which is why are these important to our study? And we had completed, uh, completed that. So I'm showing that we should be on point number three or question three, five interpretive principles that guide. All right five interpretive principles that guide biblical revelation and doctrine. I want you to turn because it's important that we get our doctrine from the Word of God. So if you will turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is probably going to be one of our primary passages that we're actually going to be using as we go through this. And my goal and my prayer would be that if you do not have these two verses memorized or if you're not accustomed to memorization work, I would highly recommend that you start memorizing god's word if you get to a point where and 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 here's part of really the criteria to memorizing is keeping god's word in use in front of you so much that you can actually start having the holy spirit will start bringing to memory these things that we actually study or that you remember if if it would be embarrassing to be able to get to heaven and some guy walks up to you and he says, well, did you read my book down while you were down there? Well, what book was that? Well, it's the book of Habakkuk. In England, they call it Habakkuk. And so I'm not sure. I think he may speak with a British accent. He may not. Um, but you get up there and he says, well, did you read my book? Well, didn't know you read one. And I think that that's the way that a lot of Christians, unfortunately, approach the word of God, we want God to be able to give us the answers. We want to be able to know what God's will is. We want to be able to have an understanding of the Bible as long as it's surface level. And the things that we do, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he says, I beat my body, I bring my body under subjection. The word there is gumnos, it's the same word that we get gymnasium from. And to be able to have a deeper understanding of God's Word is going to take good old-fashioned sweat. It takes hard work to be able to do this. And for anybody who has ever served, my dad has served much longer than I have in ministry, been in ministry over 45 years, and the things that we are able to recall comes from a repeated reading as long as I can ever remember my dad has read through the Bible at least once a year, every year for the last probably 50-60 years and the more you read the more you become familiar with it I've shared with some of you, Pilgrim's Progress next to the Bible is probably my favorite book of all time I've probably read Pilgrim's Progress 20 times in my Christian life and I learned something new out of that book every single time that I read it But I also learn things that maybe I don't want to hear, or I don't want to know, or I don't want to apply when I'm actually reading the Word of God as well, because it's not easy to be able to apply the things that we're learning. So somebody read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 for us. Whatever version you have is fine.
1: Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Inspired.
0: What does this word mean? When we talk about inspiration, we have to go back and there's nothing new under the sun. There have always been fights within... Christianity as a whole, it's always been over something. You, if you were to go back and you were to read, uh, for example, the Council of Trent or the Council of Constantinople or Council of Nicaea, these were, these were councils of churches, bishops and pastors who got together to come. And when they got together, it was for the purpose of being able to define what certain doctrines were as opposed to the heresies that were taking place. You see, if you think that living in the first century church was a lot easier because they were closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, by the time you get to the Apostle John's writings, he's already dealing with something called Gnosticism. And that's in the first century. That's only 40, 50 years after the Lord Jesus Christ has returned to heaven. Paul wrote the book of Galatians. What was the book of Galatians for? What was he dealing with in that book? Huh? Huh? A work salvation. He was dealing with legalism because somebody had come in to teach the Galatians another gospel. And then when we get to the book of John, John is writing from the Isle of Patmos and he's there in exile and he's looking across to the seven churches, in the direction of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And one of them, Ephesus, has already lost its first love. John used to be the pastor there. Do you think he didn't teach on love while he was there? Sure he did. And as we considered, if you remember when we were going through the book of Philemon, who was it that actually, that tradition states, actually became the pastor at Ephesus? Timothy was. Timothy came after John. Onesimus. Tradition says that Onesimus became the third pastor of the church of Ephesus. And yet as... Onesimus, when from the time that Onesimus passes away until John writes, according again to tradition, it's no more than about fifteen years. In other words, about another generation has now grown up in the church, and here's a church that is pretty much dead. It's that quick. Because if we don't, if we don't take the time to understand what God's word has to say. What's going to happen to the next generation? And, and my dad and I, we have talked about this in the past, and, and, I, and we have made, uh, uh, I don't want to say jokes, but that would be the word that comes to mind at the time. It, in the South in particular, you have, uh, in, 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 where in the type of churches that I grew up in, some of them, you would have uh, uh, predominantly in the South, and there are some maybe in the North as well or out here in the West, And you would go into a church and you would have the pastor and he's standing up there wearing his three-piece suit and his tie. And and then along the front row, you would have a row of five or six or seven guys. Those are called preacher boys. (laughs) Now, there's nothing wrong with desiring the office of a bishop. And the problem was, though, instead of implementing the changes or implementing what they needed to learn, some of them were just sitting there and they were waiting for the old pastor to die so that they could all fight over who was going to be next. Now, that's not the goal for anybody, shouldn't be, to see who's next or who's to be preeminent. As Colossians says, Christ is to be preeminent. And as long as Christ is preeminent, there is no doubt in my mind that, that, that if God so chose to do so, what if we found ourselves in a situation, because this is being recorded, I'm not going to say the name of the country, but you all know who, which country we're talking about, the, one of the, one of the uh, places that we support, uh, it's a restricted nation, uh, what if we got to a position where we could only have 15 or 20 people on a Sunday? That means somebody else has got to be a pastor. It, it, you go to places like China where they have to meet in secret. Do, do you remember that video that we showed here not too long ago uh, where the one brother uh, was was commenting? He said, well, the Lord gave us a great blessing this last week because we found, and, he, and, and there's this, this, this like 40 or 50 story uh, 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 apartment complex there. And he says, the Lord blessed because we found out that there's another church right here in our building. They didn't even have to get a car to go find it, and now they're able to fellowship with one another. What a great testimony to the grace of God. But to be able to do that, to be able to do those things, we can't just fellowship with anybody. Uh, Those guys with the little name tags, you know, the guys that are elders, but they're really not even old enough to shave yet, and they show up at your door. Now, what happens when when you open the door and they say, hi, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Can you have fellowship with them? Let me give you something else here to write down, and then we're going to go back to the word inspire. Fellowship. The easiest definition is one that I heard from my dad all down through the years. Fellowship simply means two fellows in the same ship. <laughs> Now, a little bit of humor being used there, but that is the reality. You and I cannot have fellowship with somebody who's not on the same page as us doctrinally. Now, we can sit down to have a cup of coffee with somebody. I can sit down or I can hand, and I have done, I have handed a bottle of water to Mormon missionaries who are out or LDS as they prefer to be called now. I have handed them a glass of water. That is not violating scripture in any way to be gracious, to be, to show a modicum of humanity to somebody maybe on a very hot day as they're walking around. I feel sorry for them. And the reason I feel sorry for them is because I know that their religion teaches them that if these two young men don't get to the end of their two-year ministry to be able to go back home, they're families are being told that they are in danger of not being able to go to the third heaven. It's called workspace salvation. And so I can be gracious to them, but if I sit down and I've taken some of their material before, but only after I tell them, if I take yours, you have to take mine. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. But we're not sitting down and I'm not going to tell them, well, you know, you worship Jesus in your way and I'll worship him in mine. There are a lot of evangelicals that actually believe that mantra now. That you can call them whatever you want to, you worship him however you want to, and after all, you take the high road, I'll take their low road, we'll all get there eventually, somewhere down the road. No, Jesus Christ is very clear. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but by me. Now, how does that apply to those who are Christians? Now, do we want to assume for just a moment that Yellowstone Baptist Church is the only one that has truth in Cheyenne, Wyoming? Well, a couple of points here. Number one, it is possible that we are the only one that has truth. I don't know. I'm not responsible for the other churches. And if you're a member of Yellowstone Baptist Church or considering it here, part of the covenant that we have is that we will support and we will be faithful to the ministries where God has placed us. Now, for example, for those of you who have served in the military, who served in the military? Okay, a few of you. Uh, so let's say that you show up at your first Air Force Base at F.E. Warren, and you go in and the uh, uh, first shirt says, okay, Tomorrow morning, you're coming, you're signing in, doing all your paperwork here, you're in processing. Tomorrow morning, I want you to show up in full uniform. So you show up the next morning, and you're wearing a pair of Navy pajamas. Do you think the first shirt's going to have something to say? Yeah? Nice pajamas? (laughs) He might be saying more than that, right? Because if you're a branch, whatever branch of service you're in, that's the uniform that you're entitled to wear. And it's no different for us as Christians if we are going to be, we mentioned this this morning as we were going and looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, but if we are called to be a good soldier, a good soldier has to be prepared, including what they're wearing. And what we're wearing comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, which says that we are to put on the whole what? Armor Armor of God. And the reason why so many Christians, so many in evangelical churches like this fail is too often they have not bothered to put on the armor of God. That's a big issue. So when we talk about fellowship, I'm not saying that we cannot fellowship with people from other evangelical churches. But if we're going to be on the same page, we need to be able to establish, for example, we mentioned this morning that that I would love to get to a point where by the time somebody enters our parking lot to the time that they walk in, I would like somebody to be able to approach them, whether it's me or somebody else. For example, if you watch when we have the times that we have had the Lord's table, I am going to make sure if nobody else has already come up to me and told me that they have asked, I go up and I ask every visitor, do you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? The reason I'm asking is because, number one, we are a church, and number two, I have a responsibility as a pastor to let you know that this is a very solemn time that we are going to have this morning or this evening because we are partaking of the Lord's table, and the Lord's table is only open to those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And I also want to tell them and remind them of what their responsibility is with their kids so that they are prepared for that. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who say, well, you know, that's between me and God. That's a personal, that's a private issue. You know, the first 19 centuries of church history knew nothing about a private personal testimony that wasn't available to anybody else. We were talking about Jonathan Edwards, and of those of you who are listening to the Men Who Rocked the World series, Jonathan Edwards, when he went and pastored the church, uh, he actually got in trouble. No, it was John Calvin actually who got in trouble because when he went into the church that they asked him to be a pastor of, he said, That you are not allowed to come to the table of the Lord unless, first of all, you are a believer. And secondly, you have to be exhibiting outwardly to the rest of the people, the rest of the congregation, that you actually not only know the Lord, but that you are striving to live in a life that is full of holiness, that has a desire to please Him. And you know what happened? They kicked him out. Because holiness is just as important and striving to live a life of holiness. If we're living in open sin, we have no business partaking of the Lord's table. But there are a lot of churches that just pass it out because it's just a two or three minute tack on at the end of a service. So make sure that when we are talking about fellowship, and again, this is not about, you could be sitting down at Starbucks with somebody and I walk in this next week and you've got your Bible doctrine class and you're teaching them what you're learning one of the best ways to be able to learn is for you to be able to teach somebody else what you're learning i'm not going to have any issues with that whatsoever but if i walk in and they've got you've got this and they've got the book of mormon and they're trying to teach you biblical they're trying to teach you their bible doctrine i think we would have an issue wouldn't we because what they're trying to teach is taking you away from the god of the scriptures so again, we don't have a problem with fellowship, but make sure that we're using the same terminology. For example, there was, and I'll use this as the last illustration in regards to another church, I used to go to a pastor's meeting here. They used to meet regularly. They still meet, to my knowledge, every, uh, uh, every week they meet together. Until I began to get around and in introducing myself to some of the other pastors who were in the room, and some of them openly stated that they did not believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone but the other pastors were all calling them brothers in Christ there were two of the pastors there that said that if you weren't baptized in their church you couldn't be a true believer and yet we were saying they were saying they are brothers in Christ no i'm afraid they're not because they are adding to salvation we cannot add to the works of salvation that have already been completed by the Lord Jesus Christ. So fellowship is not just two fellows in the same ship. In other words, you are, tacking a, you are tacking together, for to use ship terms or sailing terms, you are tacking into the wind, going the same direction, in the same boat, with the same purpose in mind. Eternity has to be in your heart and in theirs to have Fellowship. So let's go back to inspiration, or to inspire. It's the same word that is used, or same derivative of the used word. What does this word mean? Mm-hmm. Simply put, two words. God breathed. Thank you. God breathed.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The two fights that have been taken place probably over the last 50 years within evangelicalism today number 1 was the inerrancy of scripture this was the first one it was a big issue back in the 70s and 80s and the inerrancy of scripture simply means it is without error okay so when the scriptures were written of course there was only it was only written in either greek aramaic or hebrew depending on which portion was written and we believe though that god breathed this out god using and we're going to learn this when we get to bibliology god used each man's individual writing style but in that god breathed through them and the holy spirit came upon them to be able to write the scriptures that we now have okay the second issue is the issue that i believe that we're seeing right now and we are seeing a massive swing Within Baptist churches, Bible churches, community churches as a main example, and that is the sufficiency of Scripture. Second Peter chapter one verse three, that would be the second verse that I would recommend that you learn. If somebody could read Second Peter chapter one, verse three for us. According to
1: Jesus. Okay,
0: read that first part again.
1: According to his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness.
0: All things that pertain to life and godliness. In all the years of ministry I have never encountered a counseling situation that I could not start with and end with the Bible. When it comes to counseling, I don't need the DSM-5 as my Bible sitting on my desk in order to be able to help people get through their personal needs or wants or desires. You see, because it doesn't matter whether it's a young man coming or a young couple coming for marriage counseling or after marriage counseling or somebody who is struggling with some kind of addiction in their life, the scripture has the answer to be able to do that. And the biggest problem and the reason why a lot of people don't want to change and here's the third verse that you should memorize is Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. That is the reason why so many people get themselves into trouble. Somebody read Romans 12:1 and 2, please. Looks like Ryan's almost there. Would you like to read that, Ryan? This is the problem right here. People don't want to have a renewed mind. They want to be able to be saved. They want to be saved from the fires of hell. But they don't necessarily want everything else to go along with that. For example, the holiness that God requires. The only way we're going to be able to do that, folks, is by seeing a changed mind. To be transformed. How are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind. When you go to basic training and you go in and you've got long hair, by the time you come out after the end of the first or second day, everybody's got the same haircut, everybody wears the same uniform, everybody learns how to march the same way. And you don't go in and say, well, hey, drill sergeant, I've got a better way of marching that I think will work for all of us. No, you go in and the drill instructor breaks you down in order to build you back up So that when you graduate from basic training, you can be called a soldier or an airman or a sailor or a marine. It's no different with the Word of God. The analogies that we find in Scripture or that we find throughout life, it all all goes back to the Scriptures. We can use the same illustrations. And if we're going to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to strive towards a life of holiness, it requires, going back to that word gumnos, g-u-m-n-o-s in the Greek, gumnos, it's going to require hard work. Tough work. Sweat. Sweat equity. Now, God breathed, for it to be God-breathed, that means that God had something to do with it. That, in a nutshell, is what inspiration is. And we either believe, first of all, that this is, listen carefully, this does not, I'm going to stand up here and tell you, this does not contain the Word of God. It is, it is the Word of God. There is a big difference. That was part of what the Reformation was about because the... The established church, the Roman Catholic church system, actually stated to the people the parts that they wanted you to practice were the word of God. This is either the word of God or we don't have the word of God. So somebody says, well, well, you know, man wrote that, yeah, they did, but they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that gives you and I the ability, once we are saved, to be able to follow Christ. So somebody says, does that book contain the Word of God? Tell them, no, nope. they'll probably be shocked. You say, it is the Word of God, and if it is the Word of God, you then have to have a life that matches up that says, Oh, yeah, that's right. Not only it is the Word of God, but I believe it to the point where my life is changing. Uh, listen, brothers and sisters, you and I should not be struggling with the same sins, excuse me, the same sins in our life that we were struggling with 20 years ago. We should have a different perspective. We should have a different understanding of Scripture. We should be closer to holiness, the, the standard of holiness, which we find in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and that says simply this, be as it is written, be ye holy. The word holy there simply means to be set apart, to be sanctified for the master's use. And, and this is one of the re, one of the terms and we're going to get to this when we deal with salvation, but this is what what we call progressive sanctification. In other words, it is a progress. And it's going to take time. And let me caution you by saying this. It is not you that is the standard. And it is not me. Because how God may be dealing in your life is going to be different than how he deals in my life with something. I may be going through something that you will never go through in your entire life. Why should God deal with you in an area that you've already got a mastery over? But there may be something that you're going through that I'm not. And I simply need to be able to come alongside you and say, Hey, listen, one of the worst things that you can tell somebody is this. I understand. I know how you're feeling. No, you don't know how I'm feeling any more than I know how you're feeling. But I know the person who controls feelings and the one who can help you bring your emotions and your feelings and your intellect under the control of the Holy Spirit so that you then respond in a biblical manner. You know, it never fails. If you read a missionary book and you, and you read the stories and the accounts of those who serve, whether it's in Papua New Guinea or in Southeast Asia or in places like West Africa where we were, and you, and you hear some of the things that take place, and like where we were in Liberia, for, for the first two weeks that we were there in, in a village of 800, a little over 800 people, we had 11 or 12 people die inside of 14 days. We are living on top of, in our house, by ourselves, separate from the rest of the village, on what was called Demon Hill. <coughs> Guess whose fingers started pointing because they hadn't had a missionary in that village in over 35 years. Guess who they're starting to consider? Who's they're starting to look at? And all of the things I'm not going to go over everything that they went through and 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 all of the screaming and the care. I mean, just ungodly to the max but you know what happened when people actually got saved truly came to know the lord jesus christ they began to have a hope not just in this life but in the life to come they didn't have to react nor did they react the same way that they did when they were an unbeliever when death came visiting at their house because that's what god's word does to you the holy spirit changes your life he changes your perspective The problem is, we don't want to be changed. And sometimes we go kicking and fighting because we don't want to be changed. So, number three, that was just the intro. That was free, by the way. (laughs) Five interpretive principles that guide biblical revelation and doctrine. And we will go through this part quickly. Number one, the literal principle. Scripture should be understood in its literal, natural, normal sense. Now even Proverbs conveys truth. But if I go to Proverbs chapter 1 and I read a lion is roaring in the streets and it's talking about wisdom, the personification of wisdom there being made into a person, I'm not running around downtown Cheyenne looking for some woman or a lion named Wisdom. That's not literal. But we can learn from those truths that are actually found in every part of Scripture, even with a parable. What is? It? How can you define a Parable. Jesus Christ is speaking, and he talks to his disciples, and he talks to the people. And in many parables, he taught them. What was a parable? It was, It's kind
1: of a story, or okay. almost a limerick
0: in a way. Okay, can you name me a parable, for example? One maybe that you've read or remember off the top of your head? The not, not, the, not the whole thing, but just, just give me a parable.
1: Go
0: ahead. The wayward son. Okay, the wayward son, prodigal son, right? Okay, so the prodigal son, we know the account there, that's not actually a real person that is involved, but he's using an earthly story to convey, here's the definition of a parable, an earthly story to convey a heavenly meaning. Pretty simple, isn't it? Because Jesus Christ came preaching following John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord Jesus Christ came and he says the kingdom of heaven is now here. This is the direction that he is pointing the people towards and he is saying, I am here, I am he, I am the promised Messiah. And what happened? They rejected him, right? So when we look at scripture, for example, and we go to Revelation, which we looked at for well over a year and a half and we got to Revelation, we weren't looking up in the sky and trying to match Revelation chapter 10 or chapter 11 with Apache 64 helicopters, now we can take some things literally and we understand but some things are also an allegory we can look for example and there are people on both sides of the fence in regards to the book of Song of Solomon for example and regardless of how you see it I believe it's it's written as a personal love letter by King Solomon and it is about the intimacy and the sanctity of marriage it is not about the church. Because the church had not yet been established. He is writing to Israel. He is not writing to the Old te- or to the New Testament church.
1: So that by definition would make it not an allegory.
0: Co- correct. Well, no, it could be. Because if he's writing to, if he's writing, well, he, I, he, I say he's writing to Israel. I don't believe he's actually writing that to Israel. I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Solomon actually wrote the book just as he did with Ecclesiastes. Right,
1: but it points as a marriage definition later when Christ talks about the bride and that stuff, but it's not an allegory. Song of Solomon is not an allegory.
0: No, I know, sorry. I mean allegorical. I'm talking about things that are illustrations. For example, you go to, as a, as a different example, uh, I and mean, we're going to get into the grammar in just a moment, but you deal with like metaphors. Um, Ezekiel chapter 1 is a classic example. Uh, Ezekiel sees a vision and he tries to describe what he sees in heaven, going on in heaven. Well, it's like kind of sort of not really, but I'm not sure. But this is what I actually saw. I'll try to describe it the best I can. Same thing. Now, when we're talking in John Bunyan, for example, John Bunyan, that is an allegory. Um, It was an allegory, again, that was designed to present gospel truths in regards for example when we come to get saved did anybody here actually see a wicked gate when you came to it when you got saved no a wicked gate was simply a narrow gate that led from one field to another and John Bunyan is using this to be able to get the understanding of the people on what salvation is like but it's the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 narrow is the gate that leads to life eternal And few find it. But those who are on the wide road, they don't have to find the wide road. They're already on it. We're all born on the wide road. So, literal, we must seek to understand the Bible literally and let it speak for itself. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. This is why I love exposition. This is why breaking down the scriptures verse by verse and seeking to understand, firstly, the context. Who wrote it? Who is it written to? Why was it written? What time frame was it written? What was the overarching theme of that particular book? So when you understand, for example, as we lit, as we went over First Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning, you've got a church that is just beset by problems, a church that is just down in the dumps because they think that they've been forgotten by God. And when you understand that, that they think the day of the Lord has come and they were rejected by Christ himself, now it makes a lot more sense when you go back in there and you find things even in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 as an example where Paul tells them that they are even to live in sanctification even in their bodies, the way that they respond day by day. Secondly, historical principle. This means that it should be considered in its historical context. What the author intended and what the text meant to its first or original audience must be taken into account. Now, this may be news to some of you, but, is not for you. Does anybody know what Jeremiah 29, 11 says? I know the thoughts and the plans that I have for you to prosper you and to make your way great. Basically, that's a marked paraphrase. Okay, That has nothing to do with you. He is dealing with the children of Israel going into captivity and God promising them that they are going to be returned to the land, to the children of Israel. How many of you remember the little book that came out, The Prayer of Jabez? Oh my goodness. Everybody was talking about the prayer of Jabez. And then everybody was wearing in stickers on the cars, WWJD, what would Jesus do? You know the problem with Christian fads? That's all they are is a fad. And when we begin to take verses out of context, we're setting ourselves up for failure because what happens, for example, what's the one verse that gets used Probably in more churches, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this: I think that it is used in more churches on July the 4th than any other verse in Scripture.
1: <laughs>
0: if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and see my face, we'll forget that part. But if they will turn from their wicked, we'll forget that part. I will heal their land. Yes, Lord, we're praying, we are trusting, we are casting out the demons of whatever. We're naming it and claiming it. And the scripture says, put your hand down, Sam. The scripture says, that is not written for us. Now, are there principles that we can learn? Sure, because we get to the New Testament. Paul tells us himself in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that we are to... Confess our sin. Same principle, right? James chapter 4 verse 8 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So again, the principles are there. James chapter 5 says that we are to pray. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 18 says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. So the principles of what we are to do to humble ourselves, to confess our sins, and to pray, yes, those are found throughout all of Scripture. But for us to be able to use this and apply this as though this verse is the theme verse of America, the United States of America in 2023, has absolutely nothing to do with Scripture. That is taking taken a verse out of context. Kicking and,
1: screaming.
0: Kicking and screaming. Again, the principles are there on how we are to live. But here's part of the problem. We are not a Christian nation. We are a nation that is made up of people, some of whom, a very small percentage of whom, are Christians. They are true believers. That doesn't make us a Christian nation. It will never make us a Christian nation. Now, are the guidelines by which we live our lives? Well, it should be. But it's kind of hard to say that since 1973 when we have killed 70 million infants in this country. And there are even churches just like ours that have no issues with that number because they see it as a personal issue. No, it's not a personal issue. It's a moral issue. And a moral issue is defined as what goes against the holiness of God or what conforms to the holiness of God. And taking life is murder and will always be murder. Thirdly, the grammatical principle. Having a basic understanding of grammar helps us understand the text. This means reading for comprehension and not for the point of getting through the Bible. Now, I'm going to contradict myself here a little bit, but my encouragement to you is, firstly, have two apps going or have two Bible plans going. Number one, have an app going, version, if you don't like it. Uh, listening to it, you can read it or whatever, but if you have never read through the Bible in your entire life, I would highly encourage you, even at whatever age you are, to read through the Bible. You'll be amazed at what you find there. I mean, there are some accounts that will make you sad, there are some that will make you glad, there are going to be some that are going to make you mad. Don't depend on the pastor or the Bible teacher to be able to tell you what is in God's word. Go to God's word and find out for yourself the wonders that are there. You are you are not going to... In fact, we're going to get into it later, probably in our next lesson in, in, uh, next Sunday night. There are only four chapters. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. And there are only four that do not deal with the fall of man. Genesis 1 and 2. In Revelation 21 and 22, that means 1,185 chapters deal with sin in some form or another. And yet the common thread that runs from right from the very beginning is in the beginning, God, and at the end, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's Jesus Christ from beginning to end. He supersedes all of that. That means that there is nothing that goes on in your life or that has gone on in the history of the world or that is going on currently with current events or whatever is happening in your life that God is not sovereignly in control over. That doesn't mean that he's going to make life easy or he's not God. It means because he is God, he keeps things in control. One of the tragedies of 9-11 9-11 is not that 2,900 people died in the Twin Towers. That, that was a tragedy, but that wasn't the greatest tragedy. The greatest tragedy is all of the people, including Christians, that were complaining and moaning to God, where are you, God? God's right where he always was. He was sitting on the throne. And the fact is that on any given day, there were 50,000 people in each one of those buildings. We could have seen 50, 60, 70. We could have seen 100,000 people die in one day. And while that in itself was a tragedy, not one news anchor, not one, and and I've got them, I've got several of them bookmarked, I have seen numbers of documentaries, I have not heard one newscaster ever say, you know what was a greater tragedy? Is that during that same week of 9-11, 1.2 million people died around the entire world. Nobody even cared. But we want to blame God. Even though it was man's sin that put him there. Seek to know who the book is being written to, or the letter. Watch for things like pronouns and verbs. I've mentioned this from the pulpit. I love Ephesians chapter 1. And to go through that first 8, 9, 10 verses, and to be able to see things like, for example, let me just read this to you real quickly. Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the, doesn't say human, right? Doesn't say you, your name's not in there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who's he referring to? God, right? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he, speaking of God the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Do you get the picture? I mean, that's enough to make a Pentecostal, I mean, a Baptist shout. Because that the wonder of what Jesus Christ did for me and has done for you should make you rejoice on any day, whether you're having a good day or a bad day. He has done this for us. Now go home and look in the mirror and ask God to help you look down like John Owen did when he wrote in his book The Mortification of Sin to be able to look down into the innermost parts of your being, the parts that you want to hide from everybody, maybe including your spouse, and realize that you have been forgiven. Now go back and read Ephesians chapter 1. It will change your perspective. Fourth, the synthetic principle Scripture is to be its own interpreter. It assumes the Bible does not contradict itself. If a passage of Scripture seems to be contradicted in another area, then the interpretation is not correct. The problem here is that too many want to be governed by emotions or feelings. But understanding the Bible as a whole is a lifelong process. If I had a dollar for every person that ever told me Well, I don't know what the Bible says, but I know what I feel. I know what God told me. The first thing that you and I should be saying, um, have you read the entire scriptures all the way through? How many times have you read all the way through? Do you understand the Word of God? Because if you really understood the Word of God, you would know that you can't use that as a statement, a fact, stating, well, I know what God told me because it doesn't line up with what God says in His Word. And God's not going to tell you something that is completely contrary to what he has already said in his word. Clarity, five. God intended scripture to be understood. Areas that are clear can help to understand doctrines or texts that are cloudy in appearance. Do you know why the Reformation took place? Do you know what actually happened when the Reformation took place and the Bible began to be available in the language of the common people? people started understanding, why do you think the Roman Catholic Church didn't want the Bible in the hands of the people? Mm -hmm. Because then when somebody by the name of Tetzel comes into your village and he says, if you just put a, a, a coin in my bucket here, then we'll spring a soul from purgatory. Praise the Lord. And the reason they did that and they got away with it is because the people were ignorant. They were ignorant of what the scriptures have to say. And so when somebody like Martin Luther comes along and he says, wait a minute, the just shall live by faith, it really is sola fide, by faith alone in Christ alone. The Roman Catholic Church says, oh no, wait a minute, we can't have you teaching that. I mean, the people are going to stop following us now. They shouldn't have been following you to begin with. Because it's not just sola scriptura, it's tota scriptura. In other words, not just scripture alone, it is all of scripture. So what is a Biblicist? Question number four, found on page 26. One sentence.
1: Um, On on four, on synthetic, is it assuming the Bible does not contradict itself, or assures it does not contradict itself? Um, Scripture is not to be its own interpreter. It assumes the Bible does not contradict itself.
0: Oh, yes. So the synthetic principle is we go to the Bible assuming that there's no contradictions. In other words, if you want to find a contradiction, in other words, it could be between 1 Chronicles and 2 Kings that have a different number on a particular army that was killed. This amount was killed versus this amount of killed. So I'm not going to go to the Scripture, or I'm going to go to the Scripture and assume that, number one, we probably have two different writers Maybe two different perspectives, which is like when we're dealing with a harmony of the Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one of them give a different account sometimes. And when you even get to the crucifixion, you've got four different accounts, and each one of them reveal different aspects. Luke, who was a physician, actually records things from a medical perspective. Nobody else did. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to assume that, that God is going to be able to reveal to me through his word what this particular passage means. Now, I also think that it's important, as Paul says, that we don't get caught up in mindless or endless genealogies as well because there are some things that that if if I debate the particular spelling of a name or if I'm going to debate how many soldiers died versus here, what difference is that really going to make in my life? Now, it's obviously important enough that it was included in the pages of Scripture, but that particular passage that's talking about and... You know, Huzz and Buzz and Luz, some of the sons and the descendants of, er, of, of Moses or, or of, of Noah. Uh, the, knowing those particular names, I don't believe is going to change my perspective and how I view God. It's simply that God in his wisdom has actually revealed himself by saying, Hey, I even care about the details, but I'm not going to have some couple come to me for marriage counseling and say, Well, let's turn to the genealogy of Genesis chapter 6. I don't know if that clarifies your question. Or I think
1: I understand what you're asking. You're asking essentially when we come into it, we come in with the assumption of that. But I think that we need to understand that we need to, instead of just assuming mm-hmm. that that is that we that we know that that, that scripture does not contradict itself. There is no oh, major yes contradiction in the same sense that um, you know, like you said, numbers and stuff like that. But there is no contradiction. So we. Oftentimes, I think what we get into is that we try to take the unclear and try interpret that to contradict the clear.
0: That's true. The
1: other way around, and so that's. It's. I think it's really that's just should be just our approach. We're coming in assuming that, but I think the expectation or the knowledge is is that there is no grand contradiction. The contradictions Mm -hmm. that we have are feeding of the five thousand. Was there exactly five thousand, or is that? just like anything else, we're talking about, you know, there were 50 people in church today. I don't know. I didn't count. There may have been, well, there was probably 20 this morning. But, I mean, yeah. essentially, what we're looking at is, is a number that's given or something like that. That's not necessarily a contradiction. What it is, is it's this, it's a statement, not necessarily to be taken as an absolute, literal Uh, Statement in in all cases, right? You know, there's a lot of those examples that will take us down bunny trails. But I think that's is not what. Basically, what I was kind of comparing it with, assuming this book contains the Word of God, instead of I'm assured this book is the Word of God.
0: Oh, yes.
1: That's that's the term that I looked at and went, it doesn't quite rhyme right.
0: No, I get what you're saying now. Yes, when I come to the Word of God, I don't assume that it is God's Word. By faith, I believe that it is God's Word. Period. Now, the nuances of some of the things that we will read within the Scriptures and trying to understand. For example, if somebody's working security and they don't actually come in to use your illustration this morning with the number of people, if somebody's standing at the door and they switched out in the middle of their shift or whatever, and they actually stand at one of the doors without looking in one of the auditoriums, they may only see three or four people sitting there. And they can walk away assuming that there was only three people here this morning. But somebody who's actually in the auditorium would be able to look and see, hey, no, there was actually six people here this morning, or whatever the number is. So we're not assuming that this is the Word of God, we know that this is the Word of God. But the principle here, the synthetic principle, is dealing with the interpretation of a particular passage of Scripture. Okay.
1: Okay.
0: Good question, or good comment. Thank you. Okay, what is a Biblicist? Number four. Trenton.
1: Okay, so it said it in the book on uh, page 26. It says, Someone visit the court of Convictions, therein lies an unshakable trust in God's inerrant and infallible Bible, rightly interpreted.
0: An unshakable trust. Just like we spoke this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 speaks about faith, hope, and charity. The greatest of these is charity. That's not stuff that you can work up. You can only do it by the Holy Spirit of God. And because the Holy Spirit of God is within you, the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to you and when you're hearing truth being defined and exposited, the Holy Spirit should be matching up within your spirit and saying, yes, that's scripture. That's I need to be changing. I need to be learning. I need to be living that. I need to be learning to love somebody better or greater than what I'm doing right now because of what Christ or how Christ loved me. Point number five. The book defines, and I did want to try to finish this because we're not going to break all of these down. A distinctive is defined as the characteristic, there are eight noteworthy distinctives found on page 26. A distinctive is defined as the characteristic of a person or thing and serves to distinguish it from others. So what are the characteristics that are defined by the book? And because we're going to get into this more in bibliology, that's why we're not going to break this down in great depth, okay? Okay. Number one, a presuppositional approach to scripture. Listen to this quote. Presuppositional apologetics is an approach to apologetics which aims to present a rational basis for the Christian faith and defend it against objections by exposing the logical flaws of all other worldviews and hence demonstrating that biblical theism is the only worldview which can make consistent sense of reality. So how, does it, how is this done, for example? Number one, a presuppositional approach affirms the eternal existence of Almighty God. Period. End of story. You either believe, you either, and Dad even had it on his lesson this morning, there's truth and there's error. There's lies, there's truth. That's all there is. And it's not subjective. Truth is truth, and truth begins and ends with God. Anything apart from Him is not truth. Progressive written revelation in sixty six books. Progressive, this simply means we go Genesis to Revelation. It was progressively revealed over a period of about sixteen hundred years with approximately forty different authors. Second Peter 1, 20 and twenty-one. Thirdly, it is inerrant, which means free from error, and infallible, which means incapable of error. Secondly, another noteworthy distinctive is affirmation of creationism. Now, we could spend a long time here, which we will actually look at later on. There are three main theories. Of course, you have evolution, the evolutionary theory. You cannot combine God and science if science is proven or seeks to prove that God is not true, then science becomes wrong. I believe in a young earth theory. I believe the scriptures teach a young earth theory. I can show you from the Hebrew that I believe that scripture teaches a young earth theory. Not a day age, not a gap theory. So that's the first one. The first line there is young earth theory, also known as Y-E. Second is the day age or gap theory. This was found and was common in the Schofield Bible reference Bible. This states, basically, that between Genesis 1.1 1, 1 and Genesis 1.2, there's an indeterminate gap of time. It could have been a thousand years, it could have been a million years, in which God placed, and this actually moves or evolves into what is known as theistic evolution. That's the third line. This is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church, by the way eastern orthodox church some jews and many bible colleges and seminaries today including some that are considered evangelical they hold to theistic evolution they believe that god put god put the building blocks there and then he let it go its own course and it evolved this is how they get around saying, well, we came from apes. Well, there are some Christian colleges that teach we came from apes because God put the building blocks there. He put the Campbell soup out there on a dusty plain. Everything imploded and boom, boom, boom. And now we've got men walking around who used to be apes. That's called theistic evolution, and it is heresy. See, biblically derived covenants. We're going to look at this. There are two, two main covenants, the doctrine of works, doctrine of grace. Soteriology. This reflects God's sovereignty in salvation. We're going to get into this when we're dealing not just with bibliology, which is the study of the Bible, theology, which is the study of God, but also anthropology, which is the study of man, and then soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. They all come together. Yes. Something
1: supposed to go before evolution?
0: Yes. Theistic. 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 D-H-E-I-S-T-I-C. Theistic. Thank you. Which means evolution at the hand of God. Fifthly, cessation of all miraculous sign gifts at the end of the biblical canon. I am a cessationist. I am not a continuationist. I believe that the sign gifts were used. They were used always, always, always They were used rarely. There are only a handful of times when you actually even find miracles taking place at the hands of an individual. For example, at the hands of a prophet or at the hands of the apostles. But they were always done with unbelieving Jews present. It was a transition between the Old and the New Testament and then between the start of the church and the completed revelation, which we now have through the book of Revelation. And we'll look at that further. Number six, a biblical understanding of the New Testament church. And this is the reason why many churches have issues. is because of a poor understanding of church. Complementarian views of men and women in the church and in the home. There is a place that God has and it is a divine order. And it was an order that was defined and by the divine inspiration of God, it was actually put in place even before the fall. And we will see that complementarian views. In other words, men and women are equal in the sight of God, but each one of them has a specific role that God has placed them in. This is why there are only two genders, male and female. What you are born as is the way you will die. Science can't change that. All the ifs, ands, buts, genital mutilation, or medicine is never going to make you something that God did not create you to be. And if you believe something other than that, you are saying God in his sovereignty and his divine wisdom made a mistake. And if he made a mistake, he can no longer be God. And then finally, eschatology. This holds to a futuristic, as we see in the book, a futuristic premillennial view of the whole world. When we get to eschatology, we are going to be dealing with several different viewpoints. We're going to look at them. I'm going to have charts for you. Um, But we're not going to get out in the weeds as we're discussing that because it, to me it's not a sticking point of fellowship okay so the conclusion what is our goal second Timothy 3:16 and 17 the bottom line is that we are divided into two systems of belief one anthropocentric anthropos coming man centric centros or centron is the greek word meaning center And this is the belief that human beings are the central or most important entity in the universe. Some refer to this as human supremacy versus theocentric. Theocentric, theos or theos, Greek word, God, and centron is the center. The Theocentricism is the belief that God is the central aspect to existence. In this view, meaning, and value of actions done to people or the environment are attributed to God. And as we look at that, I know that you are going to be encouraged as we study God's word and see that he truly is supreme. He truly is sovereign over all things. Amen? Amen. Any questions this evening? sorry did I not have that in yours I thought I had written that down some of these things are my notes so thank you for let let me put this on the board for you so this this one here is the first one this is anthro-centric
1: where's that at Mark you, uh, you skipped a page or did something
0: No, I'm adding additional notes as I go through this. Okay? So So I will will try to remember when I bring in other material, I will try to remember to have that in there in the future, future lessons. Okay? So anthropocentric simply, anthropo or anthropos is man centered. Man is the center. Okay? Versus Theocentric, God centered. And it really does.
1: Procentric or pocentric?
0: Not anthropos anthropos okay. is the Greek word for man. So man centered. These two views right here everything, the way you read scripture, the way you live your life, the way you live your marriage, the way you live your work. Everything is going to boil down to these two views. You're either going to have a worldview that is man centered or a worldview that is God centered. Even in the matter of work, for example, was work a result of the fall or did God give man work before the fall? Before the fall. All right. Good question. Again, if you have any further questions, um, I'm, I'll am i be around for a, a little bit. So if you want to ask any questions, you're welcome to do so. Thank you for your attentiveness tonight. And um, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, again for the study of your word. I pray that each one of these classes would be an encouragement to those who listen to them. Help us to have a truly theocentric view of life recognizing that you are supreme, that you are sovereign over all, that the Lord Jesus Christ is to be preeminent, not prominent, but preeminent, first and only in our life. Thank you, Father. Give safety to everyone on their way home, and we have a
1: blessed week. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.